You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Hi, everybody. I'm Jackie Lewis, and this is Love, Period, a podcast about how we're going to love ourselves, love our posse, and love the world fiercely on the way to making our lives and the world better. My guest today is Robert P. Jones, or to me and his friends, Robbie Jones. He is the CEO and founder of Public Religions Research Institute, and also the author, most recently, of White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. Robbie brings a personal faith and a political eye to what it means to be a revolutionary lover. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Robbie, or should I say Robert, Robert P. Jones. Yeah, Jacqueline. (laughs) (laughs) It's good to see you, Robbie. Yeah, you too. How have you been? Well, you know, that's a complicated question, isn't it? These days, I think like many people, I'm trying to focus on putting one foot in in front of the other one day at a time. Yeah. It's all we can do some days is to get up, floss our teeth, drink our coffee, do our day. And take it to bed at night, right? Yeah. It's a lot going on. I love your newest book. Oh, thank you. How did you feel about writing that? It felt like you shifted just a bit in voice. That's right. You know, as you know, I mean, like, you know, my day job at PRI, I often, you know, am flying at 30,000 feet looking at the demographic landscape. But, you know, this one that was really trying to take on the legacy of white supremacy in American Christianity was just unavoidably personal, you know, so I wrestled a little bit with uh, about that. I, I don't write in the first person very easily or often, but I decided that for this one, you know, I began the book, uh, the first sentence in the book has the word I in it, the last sentence in the book has the word us in it. So I, I very, I just knew I had to, to write that. I mean, as a white Christian who grew up in Mississippi, this is kind of part of my story and my family's story. And even if I pretended I wasn't, I was going to be writing it from that perspective. So, you know, I figured it's better to put that, just put that on the page and have my journey be, be part of the book. Yeah. And it feels to me so pertinent right now, Robbie, as we have turned our clock to a new year, we're turning our faces as you and I are talking toward the inauguration. And therefore, right in our rearview mirror is the events of that first week in January, and the insurrection, and the impeachment conversation. If you were talking to the folks, if the folks who were in the Capitol storming it were listening to our podcast, let me put it that way, what do you want to say to people about love in this time of COVID and sort of tense politics? Yeah, well, you know, we didn't see a lot of love you know, from those images. And we saw violence, we saw white supremacy, we saw Christian banners and symbols, which are supposed to be symbols of love, right? Greater love have no person, right? Then all of that, you will know them by their love, right? All those kind of passages, you know, out of the, out of the Bible. And yet, I don't think that's what we conclude, I think, from there. The thing I would say is that, and I wrote a piece, you know, last week, out of my reflections here, just saying, you know, but we, we do have to take seriously the fact that, you know, these symbols of white supremacy, the Confederate flag, neo-Nazi imagery, you know, things like someone wearing a Camp Auschwitz hoodie, you know, all these other white supremacist symbols were so comfortably carried alongside of 
like the Christian flag, right? This white flag with a blue canton in the, in the upper corner with a red cross. And it's, you know, this, the official flag it was adopted by the, the Federal Council of Churches in 1942. It sits in many sanctuaries across the country, including the one, I mean, there were two things on the platform behind the pulpit in the evangelical church I grew up in was the American flag on one side and the Christian flag on the other. And to see that carried as part of an insurrection side by side with the Confederate flag, you know, just quite disturbing. And but I, But I think we have to take that seriously about how so much, so many of our churches, and particularly white Christian churches, have been taken over really by a politics of fear and loss rather than a politics of love. Right. A politics of fear and loss. And so what, where did the love go? I'm having Tina Turner in my head. You know, what's love got to do with it? I think yeah. I want to say, you know, when did, what happened? Robbie, I'm not kidding. What do you, you and I are, are, are close enough in age. You've got Mississippi roots and I do too. Where did it go? Where did the love at the center of the movement of Jesus go? Well, you know, I think the thing that I've been trying to, in my own mind, get down to, okay, what's at the bottom of it, right? What is what is at the root of it? And I just am convinced that at the root of it is this threat of loss, right? And and then you kind of just interrogate a little bit more. So what what's being lost? And I think what's being lost is this sense for many, if not most, white Christians that they are America, that we white Christians own the country. The country was divinely ordained to be ours. This is all part of, you know, a white supremacist worldview that has never been successfully purged from white Christian churches. You know, we've had any number of moments. We, we had a bloody civil war that provided an opportunity for us to purge this from our midst. We had Reconstruction and the demise of Reconstruction. We had the rise of Jim Crow. We've had the civil rights movement. We've had so many opportunities to purge this disease, this deformity from the DNA of white Christian churches, and we refuse to do it. And so I think that what we're seeing is the result of that cowardice, really, on our part, and that and our unwillingness to move, really, and to, to, to embrace this sense of inclusion and love. And so the big fight, really, it comes down to something fairly simple. It really is a white Christian ownership of the country versus a vision of a shared multicultural, multi-religious community. And those are two very, very different. You know, I've been reading, rereading King, you know, reread Letter from Birmingham Jail, which I would say like everyone should be rereading Letter from Birmingham Jail right now. And even, you know, the title of this book, like, where do we go from here? Chaos or community? And I feel like that's that's what's sitting in front of us. Chaos and fear with this sense of loss of something that was never Christian and was never really democratic you know, this kind of unilateral ownership by an, uh, one religious and ethnic group versus the promise that the country has always held out, but never quite achieved. Yeah. I mean, when you say that, I feel like there's not so much to add. I've really been digging around and to the foundation of our nation as I've been working on a book about fierce love and just thinking, you know, especially when I hear people say, Robbie, this is not who we are. I say, oh, listen, well, speaking of the Bible, like the truth will set us free. This is exactly who we are, sadly. It is who we have been as a person of color. I think about, you know, the papal bull that says, you know, go ye and take the land from the heathens and anything you find you can have. I think about the doctrine of discovery. I think about how the indigenous people were treated. 
here in this land. My church, the Dutch Reformed Church, are the people who took Manhattan from the Lenape, mm. some slave owners in our ecclesiastical history. And I know that you know, our podcast is called Love Period, so we're, we're thinking a lot about, about love in a personal way. But I also think, sometimes I think, Robbie, the white people who cannot imagine a multi-ethnic, multicultural world, I find myself thinking, do you love yourself? I really do think, I do wonder about that. That if something, if something happened that was around the axis of shame or, I don't know, but the just... The way I would feel good about myself is because I would have so much power and you don't have any room in the nation and there we go. But but if at base, there was more love, more self-love, would there be more other love? Would there be more empathy, right? Would there be more kindness? Does that sound too nanny-pammy or is that worth? <laughs> no, you know, I mean, it, as you know, I spent a lot of time with a lot of African-American writers because as a you know white Christian, that was what I needed to kind of help so I, here I am. So I'm, so, you know, I've got a seminary degree. I've got a PhD in religion. I'm 52 years old. So I've had a lot of time to think about this and just realizing that, you know, the white Christianity I grew up with gave me very few tools to get leverage on this. And so reading Toni Morrison and James Baldwin and Howard Thurman and King and Cohn and to sort of just steep myself in that a bit to help kind of break out of this, even the, you know, the even more get leverage on the world that I grew up with. But there was, you know, I do think that this goes so deeply, but I, but I think psychologically you're pointing to something really important is that you know, at the end of the day, there's a kind of desperate grasping, right, at something, right, that is at the heart of this, a, a, um, a panicky, apocalyptic kind of feel. And that is not a place of mental health. Right. I mean, that is a place of deep psychic disturbance. And I think that that's why what has gone hand in hand with all of this is these crazy QAnon conspiracy theories. Right. Because I, I, I but I but I think that this this mental space of and, and I think just for my own denomination, I'll kind of make it really personal and specific. You know, the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the you know, churches that I grew up in where my seminary degree comes from. You know, it was formed in 1845, specifically over the issue of whether it was appropriate and legitimate for a Christian clergy member to enslave other people. And the Northern Baptists, you know, split off and said, nope, we're not going to appoint any missionaries that are also enslaving other people. And the Southern and Southern Baptist Convention came from the churches in the South saying, and this is 1845 predating the Civil War, right? Um, this, was a, this was a religious secessionist movement, right, that, that happened among the Baptists and the Methodists as well, by the way, in the same year. And so if you take that seriously and you just pause and you sit with that, right, that that's the genesis moment of my home denomination of making and declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ to be compatible with the enslavement of other human beings based on the color of their skin. Lord have mercy. Right. And if you take that seriously and you ask, what sort of mental and spiritual damage do you have to do to yourself to hold those two things together for 200 years? Then I think we're, we're pretty clear on, I think, you know, James Baldwin wrote about, you know, that he, he said, you know, he and he hear many African-Americans talking about whites and particularly white Christians who were the most, you know, self-congratulatory among the segregationists, saying that they 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 saw them as slightly 
insane, right? Is, is actually mentally ill because of having to hold these things together that it, at the end of the day can't fully hold. And so I, I think that this is a long, long trajectory that we've had, again, that we've had moments where history offered us moments of redemption to take another fork in the road. And for the most part, white Christians just have not been willing to do that in mass. And, and so I, I think we're, we're sitting with the consequences of many of those past decisions. And, and I think for you know, any white Christians listening to this, we're sitting at another fork in the road where history has given us a clear choice. And it's chaos and community. It's fear versus love. And, you know, we got to make some costly decisions. Yes. And reading some King the other day, working on this book, I think it was a speech he gave in 1967 to one of those places you go when you give speeches to people about civil rights. People were kind of asking him, is the civil rights movement over? And King was saying, actually, it's not, but it's gotten to a harder place. And I'm paraphrasing him, but he was saying Mm. the first wave of this it doesn't cost you anything to let us sit at a lunchroom counter, really. You know, it doesn't cost you anything. And it, maybe it doesn't even give you, cost you that much to give us the right to vote. But to let go of the power and to make the economy different so that people are not poor, that costs something. And he felt that a lot of whites kind of fell out of the movement then because it was going to force them. I'm reading on to you, Dr. King, but it was going to force them to have to really change, Robbie, like, and really give up something of... of, mm-hmm. of themselves. And that thing that, 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 that I feel like my white brothers and sisters sometimes can't give up is just the kind of fragile, ego-based lie that they're actually better, that they're just actually better, that wrapped up in the white supremacy or the racism. Is it actually, Robbie, that they think they're better? It's a kind of vulnerable ego construct that, that's based on a lie and that, that you have to fight to keep, and, and that it feels so precious, so fragile, so vulnerable, that so you have to fight so hard to keep it. I think that's, that's right, that, that resonates with me. And then the other you know, piece that resonates is that I think there's a social component to that as well. And you know, that you, know, you and I have talked about this before, that you know, my previous book, you know, provocatively titled The End of White Christian America. But the reason I, I title it that way, I think, because I wanted to put the point on this ownership problem that we're talking about, right? And so there's a kind of psychological piece of it. And I think there's a social piece of it. And there's a way in which this generation of particularly white Christians is having to face something that no other generation of white Christians has had to face. Because back in the 60s, for example, as rights were being expanded, voting rights, other kinds of rights, country club kind of things were coming down, barriers at Harvard and Yale were coming down, right? You know, those kinds of things. There was still a sense, though, that white Anglo-Saxon Protestants were still in charge, right? And that was true, whether it was in the corporate setting or in the sort of government setting, but in cultural generally and demographically, there were still a solid majority, right, of of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants in the country. But, you know, as, as we talked about before, in the last you know, decade, we've really crossed this new threshold. We have gone from being a country that, demographically speaking, was a majority white Christian country to one that's no longer a majority white Christian country. 2008, when Barack Obama runs for president, the country's 54% white and Christian. That number today is 44, right? So we've crossed this threshold 10 percentage points in just a little more than a decade. That's a lot of movement. And so I think there's a way in which Previous generations of white Christians were able to finesse this question 
by giving up the formalities, right, of law and policy, knowing that culturally they could still hold on to power because they had the numbers to do it. And I think where we are today, though, is that the way the demographics have shifted, it means that those shifts and those laws, if they're followed and people actually get to vote in proportionate numbers that they should, that now the threat is real, right, in ways that it just hasn't been in terms of power. So I think that's really important, too. Is And so when Trump says things like, if you don't fight for this election, as he did right before the insurrection, America, as you know it, will be over. There's some kernel of truth to that, right, that he means. But again, if we interrogate what that is, I mean, it, it's not a vision that's either democratic or Christian, really, in an authentic way. But it's a very undemocratic and very un-American view. But we've got to call it that, I think. The last thing I will say, um, I know I'm going on a little bit long here, but the last thing I want to say is this thing you said about, I completely agree with you about people so quick to say, this is not who we are, right? Or to look at those Christian flags marching into the Capitol beside the Confederate flag and say, this is not who we are. And I do think we've got to pause here and we can say something maybe close to that. I think we can say, this is not the best of who we are. But I think we can't, you know, I think we do ourselves a disservice and that we actually miss the work that needs to be done by saying this is not who we are. We have to say this is not the best of who we are, but it is who we are right now, at least a, a, a sizable portion of us. And, and we, we get work to do to get to a better place. Love Period will continue in a moment. Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. So you're a white 52-year-old, highly educated researcher who writes beautiful books and has a great family. There's a lot of people like you in this world with different ideology who haven't sat with the black authors, who haven't opened their heart up to the questions, who haven't tried to push themselves past something. And if my theory is some of this is about just a kind of hole in the soul where love could be or creating an ego construct to say, I'm okay because I have a house or I'm okay, you know, I'm better than you because I'm white. Do you ever have days, Robbie, where you feel in and out of love with yourself? Do you ever have times when your self-esteem is down? How do you get it back? Does that resonate with you at all? Yeah. I mean, you know, this last, I mean, this book was hard. It was a hard book to write, you know, yeah, everything from, I mean, there were, there were moments I had to walk away from the keyboard because I was in tears at the sentence I had just written. Like, I, I mean, I would read the sentence and just think like, okay, is that sentence right? Yep, it's right. You know, so when I wrote something like, you know, a few that I remember that what the data really points to, for example, is that if you were a white supremacist and you're wanting to have the highest rate of recruitment you might have in a hypothetical situation, you'd be better off recruiting people in the parking lot of white Christian churches after services let out, than you would recruiting white people and sitting out services in the coffee shops. 
you know, that that's what the data today, not in the 1960s or 1860s. I mean, that's what the data today suggests that if you take your average white person, you add Christian identity, they get more racist. And so that witness, right, is kind of one that stopped me in my tracks, you know, and because, you know, I think like many people have this complicated relationship with my religious upbringing, you know, that on the one hand, I can say it shaped me and, you know, into the person in many ways into the person I am today. On the other hand, it robbed me, I think, of an ability to see the suffering of other people who didn't look like me. And it did that by design. And so coming to terms with that and, and you know, did some genealogical research and being, you know, through the kind of miracle of, you know, digitized documents today, seeing the handwritten estate ledger from my sixth great uncle in middle Georgia who delineated the property, you know, um, when he died, it was kind of this list of inventory of, it, it literally said the chattels and goods of Pleasant Moon in 1815. And, you know, among those are four human beings listed, you know, in that inventory alongside things like a kitchen table and six chairs, you know, and so seeing that and taking that seriously, staring at those, you know, especially with those handwritten documents where it just, I think, makes it more kind of alive and, and closer to you. Yeah, sure, there were some moments of of despair, uh, my, I think, of, of kind of thinking like, okay, is this not just too big to even untie? But but I, I do think we're at another moment. There's been a number of other moments, but I think we're at another moment of reckoning. And so I think that that has kind of given me some hope. I think, you know, seeing things like just this last week. So we, we on the one hand, we saw the, again, the Christian flag and Confederate flag being paraded together in an insurrection at the Capitol. We also saw just two days ago, for the first time in my home state of Mississippi, a flag rise above the state Capitol building that did not include the Confederate battle flag, right? And so these things are both happening, right? And and so I think if I'm finding places to lean in and hope and, and find space for, for love and repair and all those kinds of things that contribute to helping us move forward, it's, I think, seeing some moments, you know, like that. And, and I should say that despite Mississippi overwhelmingly voted to put Trump back into office, at the same time, you know, there's this movement against the Confederate flag in the state of Mississippi, and the Mississippi Baptist Convention came out opposing the Confederate flag, you know, this past year, which they've never done. So it's all jumbled up, and I think that the possibilities are there, but it's going to take us all putting our shoulders to the right wheel to move us forward. Amen. Do you know Genesis B? Do you know the name Genesis B? Mm-mm. Genesis is a young African-American woman, biracial young woman, Muslim artist, rap artist. She worked on, she does BE, Genesis B. She worked on this Mississippi flag project through the Moral Courage Project, or Shadmanji's Moral Courage Project. I'm so proud of her. She, she, she just kept pushing. She did art. She famously one time made the flag into a noose at a nightclub mm. when she was doing a gig. Anjou Ellis is an actress friend of mine. They both work on this. So I'm, I'm really proud of that work. And I'm really proud yeah. because two activists or 10 activists don't change the story. 25 activists don't change it. White hearts had to change, right? Legislative hearts had to change. So I'm proud of that. So those Mississippi people are your people and my people, right? Yeah. My mom is from Ruleville. My dad is from Meridian. Where are you from? Jackson. Jackson. My aunt lives in Jackson now. When white people that are your posse, Robbie, act out, you know, show their stanky parts, do you feel disaffected from them? 
Do you fall away from them? Do you fall back in love with them? Do you have relatives that you go in and out of relationship with because of you, the difference in your politic? I mean, I'm just curious about that. Yeah, it's. I think like many whites and white Christians, it, it's especially those who are trying to take this legacy of white supremacy seriously, it's complicated. You know, I, I titled the first chapter of my book, Seeing, S-E-E-I-N-G, because I felt like that was the biggest problem, right? Is just seeing this legacy, just seeing this problem and how it's with us today. I think that's, I think, still part of the biggest problem. Uh, if there's any anything positive, I think, that is that might come out of this insurrection and s- it is that these symbols of white supremacy and Christianity were so visible together, right? That the seeing part becomes much easier when you've got such a spectacle like that, that puts them out there in such symbolic ways there. But yeah, navigating this is really challenging. I mean, I've got, you know, historically people in my family that supported President Trump, people who voted for Clinton and Biden, you know, and so, yeah, it's, it's a tricky thing to navigate. And, and I mean, to be honest with you, the, the, so tricky, in fact, that like for me, just to be real personal about it, I did not send the manuscript of my book to my parents until after it was done. And partially it was because I thought it might be a really tense and difficult conversation when they read it. And I didn't want to be, I, I was fearful that I would be tempted to change something based on their objections. And I, I just had written it as honestly as I could. And I I mean, frankly, it was so strong. I didn't trust myself, right? I mean, the, to to not be able to kind of stand up there. And so I wanted to just kind of remove that possibility. But that tells you something about how strong I think and how difficult these conversations are. I mean, I, I'm happy to report that the conversation with my parents have gone really well. And I think it's kind of opened up a whole other set of conversations that I don't know that I would have ever had. And just to give you one quick example, you know, I wrote right in the book about this practice of many white churches as late as the late 60s who would post deacons out on the steps to basically head off any non-white people from entering the sanctuary, right? They were basically bouncers on the outside of the church. And so I'd written about that. And my mom told me after we were talking about this afterward, that my grandfather had played that role at East Macon Baptist Church. He was ex-Navy, you know, guy you probably wouldn't want to cross in an alley. And uh, I mean, lovely man, but, you know, kind of a tough guy and that he had played this role. And so, you know, just... And I don't know that my mom even would have had this thought again in her life, nor would she have probably told me about it. And I guess what I'm, I'm, I am hoping that as we have the courage to tell these stories, it'll make the problem real and something we can get our hands around and start dismantling. It's morally courageous to write truth about the people you love that might make them angry with you, make them not talk to you, make them fall out of love with you. I mean, what's the, what's the advice you have, Robbie, for the white listener who is thinking, man, you know, if I tell my mom the way she talks at the dinner table offends me, you know, she might never love me. Yeah. Like, how do we navigate the truth and love, you know, dynamic? Well, you know, it's interesting. Like, I, I think it's literally a matter of life and death for white Christian churches. So I think often white Christians tend to think about these kinds of things as a sort of altruistic move, right? So yes, you know, we are complicit in white supremacy if they get there. And I think the initial thought is, so we, we need to repair the damage we did to our African-American brothers and sisters. We need to kind of uh, atone for that. That's all right. 
I think the part that it took me a little while to get to, and I have Brother James Baldwin to thank, I think, really for getting me more clear on this point. I actually closed the book with this reflection, um, and, and he says, I'm going to paraphrase him here, but he said, you know, the civil rights movement began when a group of dispossessed and despised people began to wake up to what had happened to them. Mm-hmm. And I kind of took that and turned it back around on the white church. And I, I, I think the the question for us today, I think, is that a new movement within among white Christians, I think, can began to wrestle with this when we began to wake up to what white supremacy has done to us, right? How has distorted our sense of reality, our, our our own psyches? And, you know, to put it, I think oftentimes, the two things that are, I think, in the way for many white Christians are defensiveness and a sense of innocence that they feel they have to hold on to. And these are both often wrapped up in thinking about, yeah, well, like when I hear the story about my grandfather, you know, or when my uncle my great uncle, you know, told me a story that I relate in the book about a kind of revenge killing that happened on the job right after my great grandfather was killed on the job in a mining accident. And by all accounts, it was an accident. But the next week, his coworkers killed an African American that worked with them in retaliation. They kind of blamed it on him and then was operating some machinery and killed him the next week. And so taking all that in, I, I think there's there's a defensiveness and a, and a sense of wanting to defend our parents, our grandparents, you know, who stood by, who abetted, turned a blind eye to whatever, you know, the case was to all the racism in the country. And the way I've started to think about it, though, is that, you know, I've got, I've got two kids and, you know, I, I can, I've got, I feel like I've kind of got a choice here. Like I can find a way to defend, you know, my parents and grandparents and, and all of that and, and kind of double down. But that's going to mean that I'm also protecting the presence of white supremacy inside of my Christian faith. Mm-hmm. Or I can think about the faith that I want to head down to my kids and I can make some different choices, right? So but so I feel like I can I can defend my my ancestors or I can uh, think about what I want to hand down to my kids um, and, and and act accordingly, but I, I can't really do both. Right. And 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 I'm choosing, you know, the future. And I and I think when when if white Christians can get clear about that, that the choice really is is on holding on to something that is a deep distortion of Christianity, you know, or they could be the generation that has the courage to try to purge that from our midst and hand down a better vision of the gospel to the next generation. Amen. That's so right. It does seem to me, Bobby, that we are at a crossroads about what is the work we're going to do. And is the work going to be maintenance of institutions of oppression? Or is the work going to be creating a new world? And when I think about creating the new world, I think it's about how we raise our children. I really do. Like, I think what you teach your children, sophomore in college, you said, and what elementary? Yeah, 10-year-old. You know, yeah. I've got a niece and a nephew that are 10 and 13 and grandbabies that are 1 and 3. What are we going to teach them? What are we going to teach them about what it means to be a world citizen, to be good, to be kind, to be loving? What is that? And I think that's, I think that's a really important job. I think they're watching. I'm thinking about Stephen Sondheim's Into the Woods and that song, Children Will Listen, that they really are watching us and wondering what the world is that we're going to, be, we're going to create. If you could describe what a world based on love period would be like. Small question. 
I know. <laughs> Top of heart. You're, you're going to give us this in, at the end of your book, though, right? You're going to lay it all out? I, I am, but, but I might just crib some of what you say right now. So. <laughs> just a couple thoughts that you would want. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, I've been doing a lot of, a lot of internal work, just trying to boil it down for myself, because I think in some ways this can get so complicated and spin out into things that seem so overwhelming. You know, I think a couple of things conceptually, I think it comes to me boiled down into two things, you know, and, and I think particularly for white Christian churches um, and white Christians that we got to rethink two basic principles, and that is telling the truth and loving our neighbor, mm-hmm. you know, and so that sounds pretty naive and pretty simple, I think, um, you know, in some ways, but I, I think little things like how do we tell a true history about our families, you know, like, uh, like my own family history. I mean, I tried to do that work in the book, which is really important to me. And I, and I hope will be, you know, important to my kids, right. To kind of read this other history that, as you said, when, you know, as far back as we can trace, at least, you know, it begins some of your, your reference about Manhattan, right? So how does my family get to Georgia? You know, they get to Georgia because they are, invited by the U.S. government to come take 200-acre parcels of land that have been taken from Native Americans, right, after the government has forcibly removed them from the land and was recruiting white people to come down and possess the land from the dispossessed. And so, you know, being clear about that, clear about our slave-owning history and complicity and segregation, how all that has played out, I think is really important. So that truth-telling part, I think, is, is important. Again, not just to kind of come clean with people outside of us, but, but to look better at ourselves, right? And to kind of get clear on wh- who, who we want to be and, and how we want to be different than that. And then the loving our neighbor part, I think, has to be about bridging these divides, you know? And there are still so few institutions. That's why I love what middle church is up to. There are so few institutions, whether they're churches or civic organizations, that enable people to come t- together across lines of racial difference. There just aren't that many out there. So I think we got to nurture the ones that we have. We got to build more and new ones because that's really what it's going to take is all the kind of field work, you know, I, I did for the book and, and other stuff I've read is what really changes hearts is relationships, right? And so when Trayvon Martin was killed or the massacre at Charleston at Mother Emanuel AME, yeah, it happened the white Christians that responded to those things were much more likely to be people who are in relationship with African-Americans, right? Because otherwise there's the sense that it's optional to address it. But when you're in relationship, it's not optional. And the main reason is because there's someone you love who is hurting and, you know, it draws you into a response. And so I think that building those connections. So, you know, again, I think it's how do we better tell the truth and how do we better love our neighbors and expand who we think of as our neighbors I think really comes conceptually. I think, you know, those are the two things that really have stayed with me out of this work. That's awesome. Robbie, what do you know for sure about love? Well, I'm going to show my Baptist roots here, my Bible roots, which I don't tend to try it out quite so quickly most days. But, you know, the thing, I mean, I thought about earlier when we were talking, this passage of, uh, you know, perfect love casts out all fear. You know, so right at the heart of what we've been talking about is this fearfulness and this kind of desperate grasping after ownership of the country and supremacy, really. I mean, it really is about that, of being in a place that's in an unjust way over others, you know. And so moving away from that, 
and it is fear that motivates that that kind of desperate grasping but a kind of I think hoping we can find a place and I have been so grateful to hear the Biden administration talking about healing the soul of the nation and that kind of language I want to be careful to say like we have to do that with justice right I mean that's really important we can't just go willy-nilly for reconciliation without any kind of accounting of what we're looking at and what we're facing but I think the sense of love being calmer more steadfast and a better anchor for where we need to go in the country. You know, King had this, the beloved community anchored in love. Funny thing is, I think for many white Christians who have felt so desperate for so long, this kind of calming place of love, I think is gonna be a relief if we can get there. Yes. Yeah, I love the way you say a relief. And when you say that the image I have is something we can lay down in or lean into or rest in, that love could be a restive place. We need that. So, Roddy, thank you. Thank you for talking to me about politics and love. Yeah, thank you. Be well. You too. Thanks, Jackie. Love period is... Corey Pig. Paul Swanson. Izzy Spitz. Sarah Janzak. Jenna Kuiper. Sarah Palmer. Nicholas Kramer. And I'm Calissa Brewster. This podcast is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation, which is located in the heart of New Mexico, thanks to the generosity of our supporters. We also have other podcasts you might like. You can find those wherever you like to listen by searching for Center for Action and Contemplation or visit us at cac.org to find out more about our other programs. From the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good.